Well, um, thank you for joining us for worship and choosing to do that. We do appreciate that, both if you're on the live stream or here and in person. Um, We have been in a series um, that we've returned to after Advent and Christmas season. The series is called Sent, the Acts of Christians that Changed the World. And it's really the acts of God and the Spirit of God through these Christians that changed the world. Um, And so one of the things that happens is it's clear that God's Spirit works through the people. They are sent out, and wherever they go, they're talking to people about this Jesus and the good news that he has for them. And so we've seen, we saw last week how Samaritans, which were different, they were kind of, you know, separate from the Jewish people a little bit, kind of partially Jewish, partially not, and so kind of looked down on a little bit. Some of them were converted to follow Christ. And then there was an Ethiopian treasure for the queen that was converted to follow Jesus. Next week we're going to see the story of a Roman soldier who becomes a convert and follower of Jesus. Today we see the story of a Jewish religious zealot, a Jewish religious zealot from the party of the Pharisees who went to the equivalent of Harvard and gets converted through an encounter with Jesus. His name later becomes Paul. Let's pick up our text. It's Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul who later becomes Paul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word. Spirit, use it to shape us and mold us, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, we can do things the easy way or the hard way. I know you've heard that saying. Probably in film, movies, TV shows, possibly in real life also. All right, the easy way or the hard way. I remember watching one time on Hull Street here going out of Woodlake and going up toward the Wawa, watching a car turn onto Hull Street and go the wrong direction, headed into four-lane traffic. The stoplight hadn't turned green, and I was just horrified, like, oh, no, what are they going to do? And the person realized it and just drove off the road into the median, which was probably a good choice at that point. What do you do when you're going the wrong way on a one-way road, right? You've you got to change. You've got to turn around. Saul is on a road, we're told. He's on the road to Damascus, but he is not on the right way. What do I mean by that? Consider the words of Jesus written down for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. I think we have these we can put on the screen. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see what is being said here, what Jesus is saying is there's two ways of life. There's every other way, and there's God's way. There's the narrow way or the wide way. There's no middle road. That's what Jesus is saying. It's what Paul is, or Saul is discovering in Acts chapter 9. When I talk to people, um, my friends who either don't yet believe or maybe they're not sure if they want to believe, they're skeptical or critical even, um, they often have objections in, in, uh, to Christianity. And one of the objections I sometimes hear is this, that, that it's pretty narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's a pretty narrow-minded thing to say. I mean, after all, they will say to me that all religions lead down different paths to the same God. And there's many things we could say to that. But briefly, I just want to say this. My response would be, okay, if that's true, wouldn't it be arrogant of us to say to this God, this supreme being, that, hey, your son's death was kind of the narrow way, and we think there should be a broader way for everybody, even if they don't like your son, so you should make that happen. That's the way it should be. And suppose that God was so inclusive that he said, yeah, you're right, let's do that. Let's make it every way is a good way. Would that not give us reason then to say that God is unjust or even vindictive because he sends his own son to die on a cross saying, this is the way that you will provide salvation. I mean, why would you then trust that God? And since Jesus then knew the plan of what the Father was doing and says, yes, I will go to earth and I will die and suffer on a cross for the sins of people, but many can go to heaven another way, doesn't that make Jesus seem a little bit foolish? I mean, why die when it's not necessary? There's other ways. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, TikTok and Reels tells me something. It tells me that you laugh at rather than learn from fools. Right? And you don't want to be a fool. You don't want to be on those TikToks or on those Reels that are foolish ones where people are doing stupid stuff and messing up. 
if Jesus is the Son of God, the resurrected Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus says, this is what Scripture claims to us, but you prefer many ways and wide roads, then what you are doing is fooling yourself. According to the Scripture, according to what it's saying. If you realize, though, that you're going the wrong way, that you're headed down the wrong path, the wrong spiritual road, then what do you do? Well, you change direction. Right? That's what you would do. You change direction. And sure, that's what you would do. Say, okay, that's simple. Change direction. But what's the mechanism for that change? How does that happen? It boils down to, I mean, we could talk about that in many different ways, but today I want to boil it down to this, to desire. Your desire must change. Your compass of what you want must change. In other words, we could say your loves must change. What you love most must change. Your desires, you see, your loves, they propel you. They shape you because after all, you do what you want to do, what you desire to do, what you love to do. That's what governs you and shapes you most of the time. And so how do you get that desire? What do you do? James Smith is a philosopher and author of several books, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And in it, he says this, Jesus doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. So how do you get that desire? It's kind of like falling in love. You have to be captured by it. You have to be captured by it. Another way to say that is that The way you get that is God changes you or captures you by his grace. That's what he captures you with, is his grace. What is grace? Let's define that. Grace, simply put, is unmerited love freely given to you. Unmerited love freely given to you. I heard an acronym for it once that kind of has stuck with me for the letters G-R-A-C-E, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. You get the benefit, Christ pays for it. That's what grace is. And I want to talk to you today about two ways that grace changes us. Um, If you are changed by grace, then you will come to embrace Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I get it. I'm with you. I embrace you. If you're changed by grace, you embrace Jesus. The stimulus for change can come from all kinds of places, right? The person driving the wrong way down the whole street, the stimulus for change was a green light and four lanes of traffic coming at him, going into the ditch, right? There's lots of things that might be the the catalyst for change, circumstances in your life experience. It might be the folly of sin, that you have pursued a path in life and you are now suffering the consequences of those poor choices or bad decisions that you've made, whatever those may be. It might be just the fallen world that we live in. Sometimes you just get dealt a raw deal, a bad hand. Maybe you were born with a certain illness. Maybe something has come to you out of your control 
that has really been difficult for you to handle. And maybe that's a catalyst, a stimulus for you to go, I need grace. I need change. Maybe it's your family. Because a family can actually, like we testified here today with baptisms, can cultivate a faith in God. Now, they can't be the supplier of it, but they can try to cultivate and point toward it. And just as easily as they can do that, families can cultivate people to be religious without being gracious, which in the end is not a good thing because it's God's grace that changes us. So the key to change, the key to change is the kindness of God. Put Romans on the screen, if you would. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Notice what it says here. That last part of it. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to change. You say, no, it says repentance. Yes, but the word repentance means to turn around, to change directions. It's God's kindness that is intended to overwhelm you, to come upon you like a flood and go, wow, I don't deserve any of that. And when you're treated in a way that you don't deserve, with goodness and kindness, it is meant to propel you to change. And so God changes us in that way. It's how Saul was changed. Let's take a peek here at the way Saul was changed. There's at least three things that I see happening to him. One is he has an awakening. The first thing is he has an awakening, right? He's going along the road, and this awakening comes because there's this bright light like the sun that's so bright, he falls off his, his um, mule or his horse, whatever he's riding, and he goes to the ground, and he has this awakening to Jesus as the resurrected Son of God. It's repeated over and over again. Light, see, blind, sight. Clearly that Paul, for what, Saul, for all the things he had going on, could not see the reality, the truth of who Jesus was until he had an awakening. And in that moment, it was like his eyes were opened, literally in his case, eyes opened. He was blind for three days. And then his eyes are open, and then he sees. He hears the voice of Jesus. He has his awakening. The second thing that happens is he is believing that Jesus is the Savior who forgives. He has an awakening and then he's believing it. That Jesus is the Savior who forgives. He knows that he needs God's grace because of what he's been doing. He's actually been persecuting Jesus. Is what he was saying. That's what Jesus says. Why do you persecute me? He's like, well, I, what am I doing? And he knows. Like, oh, I'm persecuting you. He needs grace. And so what does he do? He gets baptized. Right? Signifying the cleansing of sin. The reality that Christ actually forgives him. And so he's had an awakening. He's believing. And thirdly, he's changing. He's changing his desires and his directions. God has done this work in his heart to change his desires and his direction to want to follow Jesus. We saw this right in the last verses that we read in verse 20 and 21 where he says, where it says that he stops persecuting people and he starts preaching the gospel and going to those people and saying, no, I was wrong. This is the truth. I mean, questions for you and me then are, are these. Are you awakened? Have you had that aha moment? Have you been like, okay, I feel like I'm starting to see more clearly? To see who Jesus is and what that means. That if he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the resurrected one from the dead, then that's a game changer, and I have to embrace him. Are you believing that? 
that he forgives your sins, that he would love you in such a way? Is it changing your desires? If you're a Christian, you're saying, yeah, I believe, and so then your desires are changed. Ask yourself this question. What do you do simply because you love Jesus? Right? That's, that's desire. Your loves, your wants. Simply because I love Jesus, I will do this. And that might be something you don't like doing, or it might be something you enjoy doing. Simply because I love Jesus, I will help out and clean the bathroom. Simply because I love Jesus, I will talk to somebody else about Jesus. Whatever it is, maybe what you should do is think for yourself this week, like, okay, each day this week, do something each day simply because you love Jesus. Right? Because desires have changed. And it starts to weave new habits into our lives. And we're like, oh, this is what I do because I love Jesus. We are changed by God's grace to embrace Jesus. Right? But the second thing I want to talk to you about is that we are also changed by God's grace to extend that grace to others, to the least and to the worst. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for me and for you. The text tells us that people are afraid of Saul. He's pursuing them. He's gotten arrest warrants, basically, from the chief priest, and he's on his way. And he's leaving Jerusalem, going to Damascus, which is not real close, right? Damascus is in Syria. Straight streets still exist today. You can go there. Um, He's on his way to Damascus. He's going far and wide, searching down, like the marshal service or something, executing arrest warrants, bringing people in to the chief priests. And so people are scared of him. We're told that Ananias was scared in verse 13. They're like, Lord, are you sure you want me to do this? He's the one that's arresting and bringing great, great harm to us. I'm not, you know, is this a good idea? God's like, go. He's like, okay, I'll go. Because he loves Jesus, he goes. In verse 26, which we didn't read, just going on, but if we were to continue on, you'll find out that, that once Saul is converted, he goes back to Jerusalem where he had persecuted so many people to meet with disciples. And it says they're afraid of him and they don't want to meet with him. They're scared. And it tells us about Barnabas, a man who says, okay, I'll meet with you and I'll take you to the apostles. It doesn't tell us if Barnabas is afraid or not. It tells us lots of people are afraid. It doesn't say anything about that with Barnabas. It doesn't say he's not afraid. It's possible he is afraid, but he's just governed by a greater love that he wants Jesus' love to be known. And that he believes that Jesus' love, his grace, can extend to even somebody like Saul. And if it does, then he says, let's go take you to the apostles. And he does that. And so Barnabas becomes this one who extends grace to him. You can be part of creating a culture. Well, let me say it this way. You are part of creating a culture. You are. Just by your existence. Culture is created by people and then institutions and things that come about by that. You are part of creating culture. Whatever you're doing, for good or worse, And you can be part of creating a culture of fear and entrapment and self-righteousness and like the sin police chasing everybody down. Or you can be part of creating a culture of grace. Grace is not opposed to the truth. It's not the opposite of it. It's still all about the truth. But a culture of grace extends the kindness of God to people. So will you help create a culture of grace? 
That's what Barnabas does for Saul. You know what, everybody who's afraid? We're going to love Saul because Jesus has loved him. How do you do that? I mean, like, that's Saul and Barnabas, and that's like forever ago. How do you do that when it's your family, when it's your spouse? When it's your kids and you don't feel particularly like loving them. Or kids, when it's your mom or dad and you're like, well, I don't know. They're not being very nice to me. How do you extend grace? What if it's in your workplace or in your neighborhood with a grumpy neighbor? How do you extend grace? To do so, it's going to require you to believe something. And it's going to require you to believe this. That you are not better than the other person. You're not superior to them. You're not better simply because God has chosen to love you and given you His grace. The very fact that God has love in you and given you His grace exemplifies that you're not better because you need it. When someone does fail and screws up, you forgive them because Jesus extends you grace every single day. How do you create that culture of grace? You have to believe that you're the biggest sinner in the room. You have to believe that you need grace like you need oxygen. Without it, you would be dead. If you're like, I just need a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of grace and then I'll be fine on my own, you don't understand it. It's not what you need. The Bible says you were dead. Jesus brought you back from the dead to give you life. You need grace like you need it to live because you do. And if you get that you will be able to extend grace to others. I want to read you this poem. I don't know where it came from. I've used it before, and I didn't have a note on where it was from. Nevertheless, I did not write it. This is what it says. It illustrates God's grace. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all or its lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics in the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. Hey, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God, you must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. God's grace comes to all of us on an equal playing field. None of us deserve it. And it changes us. By grace, we all belong to God's family, and it shapes our family culture. It's not just theoretical, it's personal, because the Bible is full of examples of how personal it is. Like Saul, who becomes St. Paul, who after supervising the jailing of people and killing them, gets totally changed by the grace of God. Or maybe King David in the Old Testament, who's a great warrior, a tender heart, a poet, a romantic, a Renaissance man, if you will, to predate the Renaissance but then becomes an adulterer and a murderer. And yet God still shows him grace, and he changes. 
and he follows God. Or Rahab in the Old Testament, who houses the spies and we're told is a prostitute and is one of the ancestors of Jesus. Or Simon, one of Jesus' disciples, who we're told is the zealot. That means the revolutionary, right? The one who wants to overthrow the government. Or Matthew, the one who's considered by Simon to be a traitor because he's a sellout and is collecting money from his people for Rome as a tax collector. Or Peter, the fisherman, with an up-and-down personality where he's either all in or all out. Yes, let's go! Nothing will stop us! And then, a few moments later, he's denying Jesus. Right? This is the ragtag bunch of people who are only brought together because of Jesus' grace. Because of the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's good news for me, and it's good news for you. I want us to embrace it and then to extend it to everybody. I once heard a story of a minister was talking to a young boy, and the young boy wanted to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And the minister was explaining to him, well, you need to accept God into your life. Accept Jesus into your heart. And what is he meaning by that, right? Is He's meaning like Jesus needs to be the thing you love to order your longings, your loves, your desires. And the little boy looks at the minister funny and he says, if I take Jesus inside of me, won't he stick out everywhere? Yeah, he should. You should be exuding, dripping, extending his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who are so changed by your grace that we love, we actually love you. We love doing simple things for you. We love doing great things for you because we love you. Help us to embrace you and then help us to extend that grace to others. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.